0: Our passage this morning is Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I'm Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, along with four other guys. And it's uh, really a great privilege to be part of the team here at Sojourn. I get the privilege this morning to kind of end out this section of Romans that we've been looking at, these last three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, we've been looking at them for some time. In fact, Pastor Dylan has been so faithfully and beautifully, he's carried us through, put us through, taken us through all these very difficult passages we find in these last three chapters. Today's passage, though, is a wonderful passage. Uh, it is one of those passages that really is memorizationable worthy. It's worthy for you to memorize, and so um, this, this passage that we're looking at this morning is a hymn. It is a song that Paul wrote in reflection of and all that he had just explained in these last three chapters: chapter nine, chapter ten, and chapter eleven. And so we have seen throughout chapters these last three chapters that Paul has been considering this question: Did God fail? Did God fail in keeping His promises to the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the nations? Did God somehow fail them? You may recall that God promised to not only be a blessing to bring be a blessing and salvation to Israel, but He promised to use them to bring the blessing to other nations. And now they have turned away from God. And so is God somehow Failed Israel, And Paul's answer that we've looked at for the last 11 weeks is what, church? Did God fail? No, absolutely not. God did not fail them in any way. And so Paul showed us that God built his church from the Jews. The Jews, the apostles were Jews. Furthermore, even to this day right now, God has a remnant of Jews that of believing Jews for Him, that trust Him. And finally, we know, we've looked in Romans 11, we know that one day, God is going to bring the nation of Israel back, not every single person, but He's going to bring them back to Himself. A mass evangelism of Jews will be where they will put their faith and trust in Christ. Now the irony is, of all this that we have seen these past couple weeks is that the Jewish rejection of Jesus of the gospel was really a blessing to the Gentiles. It was a blessing to the Gentiles. It afforded the Gentiles this unique opportunity to hear the gospel. By God pushing the apostles out of the synagogue into the streets, the Gentiles got to hear the gospel it was their opportunity and so yes God has kept his promise to the Jews and so Paul summarizes this all for us in these verses 30 through 32 let's just take a look at these verses real quick Paul says in verse 30 chapter 11 for just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience so they too now Have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you that they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. And so, what we see here, in other words, what Paul is saying is because Israel obeyed or disobeyed, you Gentiles get this unique opportunity to experience mercy. And the mercy of God toward you Gentiles in turn is going to lead the Jews to mercy because it's going to make them jealous for what they had lost and they will come back to God. And so that leads us to our verses today. Now it is almost like Paul just lost his emotions here. He gets overwhelmed with emotion And it seems like he just begins to explode in praise. Look at verse 33 here. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. Listen. What kind of God is so gracious that He turns even our disobedience into blessing. What kind of God takes our rejection of Him and uses it as part of His good plan in our lives? You see, God took our disobedience and He used it as an instrument of salvation. Listen, the clearest illustration of this is the cross, isn't it? Listen, wasn't it the cross that was the ultimate act of human rebellion? Yeah. The cross was that ultimate act of of human rebellion. And wasn't it also the very instrument that God used in our salvation? You see, God didn't save us despite the cross. God saved us through the cross. So that, what that means is that the cross was simultaneously our expression of rebellion, while at the same time, it was the instrument of our salvation. Who but God? Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who but God could do that? Paul goes on and he exclaims for us in verse 34. Look what he says there. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Would any of us have ever thought that up? Would any of us ever thought up such a plan as the one that God thought up? Do you realize how much better And loftier and wiser God is than us? He is. Paul goes on. In verse 35, look what it says. He says in verse 35, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This whole salvation thing, isn't isn't it just the most unbelievable thing Show show of grace that you could ever imagine? God, who could, who could, it's an outpouring of God's grace on our lives. Is there anyone here that you want to ask God to give you what you deserve? No. No, we we don't want to ask God to give us what we deserve because what we deserve is condemnation. But God has given us praise. Instead, God has repaid us with grace. What what we deserve is condemnation. Then finally, Paul finishes up in verse 36. Look at it quickly. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Listen, all things come from God. He is the very source of life in all of them. And it is His purpose for which they exist. You see, everything exists for God. And it exists to point out His glory. And so what that means is that God pursued this salvation process in such a way that none of us will ever be able to raise our hands and say, look, look at what I have accomplished. Or none of us will be able to say, look what I have become. No. All that we'll be able to do is say, it is only God. It is only God who compares to Him. To Him be the glory in all these things. The glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, I feel like I could just stop the sermon right there. I could just stop the sermon and say, Hey, Shelby, come on up and lead us in some more singing. But I'm afraid if I did that, the rest of the pastors would never ask me to preach again. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty short. (laughs) And so we're not going to do that. Listen, I love this passage. This This is an incredible passage for us to internalize and just take in and to use to praise the Lord. I love this passage for... Many different reasons, but one reason in particular that I love this passage is because I see Paul giving us some primary reasons why we ought to worship. He is giving us some principles about worship here. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to look at four primary principles of worship. Four primary principles of worship. Now, when I say worship, I hope you realize that I'm not talking about the the 20 minutes of singing that we just did up here. That's not what I'm talking about. Worship is not primarily a song. By the way, the word worship is really worth ship. Worth ship. And what that means is is what we think God is worth. What do you think God is worth? That's what worship is. Now sure, that is reflected in our singing that we do on Sunday mornings. I mean, if our singing was lethargic singing, when we have guests come in here and they they hear some lethargic singing, what they're going to say is that wow, their God must be a boring God. I mean, they're just uh, lethargic singing. Listen, church, nobody could claim that you guys have a boring God because you guys sing with enthusiasm. You sing loud. You sing with praise behind it. And so worship is not primarily about singing, though. The primary way we worship God Is how we respond to Him. It is how eager we are to obey Him. It is how much we treasure Him. And so, let's think about four primary principles to worship this morning. The first principle I want you to see is this. All of God's works are designed to lead. To worship. All of God's works are designed to lead to worship. Now the way Paul ends chapter 11 here, from going from theology to doxology, it shows us that in the end, everything that God has done in the pursuit of salvation is designed to lead us to amazement and to wonder. It is to lead you to be amazed at God and to wonder about Him. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 9? Let's look at it real quick. Look at chapter 9, starting in verse 22. This is what Paul said. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction?" Now get this, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. What is the primary purpose of how God pursued salvation? It was to make us to stand in amazement at the glory of His grace. Be amazed at His grace. And if, what if, what if, that kind of vision, this kind of vision, was so compelling and so beautiful that it was worth any price for you to get there? And what if the best part of heaven is seeing God in all his glory. Now I know that's hard for us to, to understand and imagine. But what if it was that? This is what it is. Listen, this is, this is how we know it. that's what it is. Because the Bible tells us that the angels who are already in heaven, ex- enjoying all these other joys of heaven, what do they stare at with, a, with wonder and amazement? So much that they can't get enough of it. Friends, 1 Peter 1.12 tells us this. It tells us that they long to look at the love of God expressed to us in the gospel. In fact, one day we will see it and we will long for it as well. Even more than the angels. You know why? Because we are the recipients of that great love. And what if, deep down inside you, that is what you have been longing for all your life? Would you believe that? I think Paul Tripp is right. Paul Tripp is right when he says that we humans are glory junkies. We're glory junkies. We are constantly searching for something to adore. Some athlete's ability, someone's intelligence, someone's artistic abilities, someone's strength of character and superhuman human endurance. We want someone to endure, something to have ultimate worth, something, someone to be worthy of all our ultimate devotion. And listen, God has been trying to show us ever since we've been born that He is that glorious one for us. He is it. Shelby, he talked about Psalms 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Do you know what that means? What it means is that through the majesty of creation, God shouts at us, that He is awesome. His power is awesome. And His beauty is awesome. Through creation. I want you to listen to what John Piper says about this. Listen to what he says. He says, Open your eyes. Do you see it? Do you hear it? He shouts at us through the endless blue breadth of the summer sky. He shouts at us with gold on the horizon in the morning and through the breathtaking expanses of the galaxies and at the stars at night. Do you see it? Do you love it? You were made for this. This is why you exist. Listen, all these things that God has created, all these things that we enjoy in life, what God has given us them, Because he wants to shout at us that he is that glorious one. I am glorious. St. Augustine, he said it like this. He said, the beauty of the world is only like the ring of the bridegroom who gives to his fiancée. You know, the ring is beautiful, it's expensive, it's valuable, and the girl who receives it, (laughs) we certainly... We, we know the girl wants to look at it. She looks at it. She admires it. She, she's, she, it's so beautiful. How many of you ladies, when your fiancé gave you the ring, you said, Oh, wow. That's so beautiful. I love it. I can't believe it. And you couldn't wait to go tell all your girlfriends. And you said, Oh, look at my ring. Look how beautiful it is. Look at that diamond. But how tragic would it be if a girl got so enamored with the ring that she forgot about the ring giver. And she forgot about the love and the commitment to which the ring points. That is the real treasure. In the same way, the beauty of creation, nature, art, romance, food, sports... All these things are pointing us to the love of God. Now, yeah, we, we can enjoy them. But never forget what they are pointing at. And who they are pointing to. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says us humans are like dumb animals. He said, you point something out to a dog. And the dog will come up, and he'll think, you're showing him your finger. And so he'll just want to come up and sniff it and lick it. He doesn't realize that your finger is pointing a trajectory to something else. You see, all the glories of this world, they have a trajectory. And that trajectory is that they're pointing to God. They're pointing us to God. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look there. Look out there. Look here. Look at all the things that God is doing. Look at creation. Look at all these things that God has done, what He's doing right now. And even in the very design of salvation, that was the whole point. To point to Him. It points to the glory of God. And when you and I develop that kind of vision, listen, it will help us to maintain joy in this life right now and joy in the future. You see, the point of everything God has done is to lead us to worship it is to lead us to worship him the second principle that i want you to see is this all bible study should end in worship all bible study should end in worship the fact that paul ends this examination of doctrine and explanation with an explosion of worship That illustrates to us and for us that the purpose of Bible study is not just to expand our spiritual understanding, but it is to set our hearts with passion. It should set our hearts with passion for Him. Now, I say this because many of us, and I include myself in this, many of us sometimes. Sometimes growth in Christ is primarily about knowledge of Bible facts and doctrines. Many of us love digging deep into the Scriptures, uncovering, unearthing all these truths about the Scriptures. And so we listen to sermon after sermon, we listen to podcast after podcast, we'll read book after book about the Scriptures wanting to get all this information. But that is not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is not to fill our heads with knowledge. But the point of the Bible is to fill our hearts with wonder. It's to fill our hearts with wonder. Now for others of you, perhaps, your interest in Christianity is more on the practical side of it on that practical nature side. You want to know how God can help you have a better marriage or a more stable family or a more fulfilling career. So you love messages that are full, packed full with practical stuff of how you could change your life. And that is great. In fact, the Bible is, it is full of great counsel for how to order our lives. But the Bible is not primarily a book about best spiritual practices. Listen, the Bible is a book about, that leads us to wonder, that leads us to wonder in God. Listen, the Bible stories aren't there to to give you heroes to emulate. It is there to show you a savior that you can marvel at and adore. And so, the Bible is about wonder. Nearly 75 years ago, a pastor, a British pastor, by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, found himself in a controversy. One of these controversies, like we just mentioned. Is it better to have a sermon full of doctrine? Or is it better for a sermon to be full of accessible, practical things in life. And this is what Dr. Jones said. He said this, the goal of a lecture is to leave with a page full of notes. The goal of a motivational speech is to leave with a page full of action steps. The goal of a sermon is to leave worshiping. There has to be a time when the pen goes down and the eyes look go upward, you stop saying, oh my God, look at what I have to do to you, and start saying, look at what you have done for me. Listen, church. It is this kind of vision that will change your life more than any practical steps that are given in a sermon. And that's why Dr. Jones went ahead and said this. He said, I spend half of my time telling Christians to study the Bible, study doctrine, and the other half of the time telling them that doctrine is not enough. Worship is the point. Listen, all Bible study, whether it's your own personal Bible study at home, whether it's when you ladies gather here on a Tuesday and you study the Scriptures together, or whether it's here on a Sunday morning when we're we're expounding the Scriptures All Bible study should end in worship to God. The third principle I want us to see is this. Worship only arises with the right posture of humility towards God. Worship only arises with the right posture of humility towards God. Now, when you stop and think about it, you stop and think about worship, worship often gets thwarted by two false assumptions that we make. Two false assumptions. The first assumption is this. Somehow, we are smarter, more fair, and more compassionate than God ever is. That's quite the assumption. But what happens sometimes... When things go on in our lives, we think, well, God, if it was me, I would have done it this way. We think that somehow we're we're far more passionate and compassionate than God ever is, or wiser than God is. If it was me, I would do it this way, God. The second assumption is this. God somehow is being unfair to us. Because I'm going through these things, He owes us something. He owes us good things. And the fact that I'm going through some bad things just means that God is unfair to me. Life is unfair. God, you really owe me. Listen, Paul addresses both of those assumptions here in these these scriptures. He addresses both of them. And he does it because he knows this. These, both of these assumptions will destroy our trust and our joy in God. Look at verse 34. Look what it says. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Let me ask you. Which of you here this morning, in this place, you think you can lecture God on how to do the th- things right. Anybody here want to lecture God on how to do things right? Listen, before we lecture God on what we think is the right thing to do, let's ask ourselves this, where did we learn the concepts of justice? Where did we learn the concepts of compassion? Where did we learn it in the first place? Well, it wa- wasn't it from God? Yeah, it was from God. So now we're going to teach God something? I don't think so. Hasn't the way that we have seen God work in our salvation, hasn't it shown us that He is worthy of our trust? God is worthy of our trust. Just a glimpse of what we've seen God do in our lives taking the very worst things of life and making them better, turning them to good? Don't we see that God is working like that in our lives? Don't we realize if given enough time, enough time and enough perspective that we will see that He will do that in all other things in life? Listen. That is what's called the humility of perspective. We need to have the humility of perspective. Humbling ourselves before God in such a way that we start to see things in God's perspective. The humility of perspective. But there's a second humility that we must have and we need to have. And that is the humility of unworthiness. The humility of unworthiness. Look at verse 35. He says, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Listen. If you stop and think about it, most complaints to God are built on the assumption that God owes us good things in this life. And therefore... If something is wrong is happening to us, if, something, if there's something, some wrong things happening to us, then why, why is this happening? Why is this going on in my life? But Paul says this. He wants us to, to realize this. If we understand the gospel, we don't have that kind of perspective. Paul says this is not... How it should be if we have, we understand the gospel. What does God owe you? What does God owe me? He owes us nothing. All He owes us is condemnation. And so, the fact that you got up this morning and you took a breath, guess what? That was grace. That was grace to you the fact that you experience anything other than hell is grace to all of us so listen the real question if we understand the gospel is not God why are you letting bad things happen to us good people that's not the question the real question is this why have you given such good things to us bad people that's the real question now I'm not saying that there's never a time to question God. No, we all have questions about what's going on in our life. God, God, it's okay to question God. In fact, the Psalms are full of questions to God. The psalmist over and over is always asking God, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to the nation? And so the Psalms are are full of laments to God about those kind of things. But what I'm saying is this, behind every question that you might ask God, there should be the recognition that we at the core are from a race that has rejected God. We have rejected God and we deserve condemnation. And so you see, The humility of perspective and the humility of unworthiness are both necessary for us to maintain a proper posture before God so that we can thrive with joy in our worship of Him. So worship arises when you and I have those two proper perspectives. Are two proper humilities. The humility of perspective and the humility of unworthiness before God. That leads us to the fourth principle that I want you to see, and that is this. The best worship is grounded in who God is, not your uh, perception of what He is doing in your circumstances. The best worship is grounded in who God is, not your perception of what he is doing in your circumstances. Now, when we look here at this explosion of praise from Paul, we notice that it emerges out of who God is and not necessarily his understanding of his circumstances in life. He is, he is wanting to see who God is. Not, he he didn't, doesn't understand what's his circumstances, perhaps. Perhaps. Now, I say this because many of us we feel like that somehow we need some token of God's love in our lives. We need to see some feel some token of God's love for us to even want to worship God. And so when we get a good result from a medical test or perhaps we have a good friend or a good family a family member who their marriage is reconciled, or maybe it's nothing more than you just get a promotion at work. You get this token of God's love to you, and you say, Oh man, I want to lo- worship God now. Yeah, those things are great. And yes, we should be thankful towards God for those experiences. And certainly, those are tokens of His love for you. But let's face it, oftentimes, God's ways, God's ways, the things that He is doing in our lives, we just don't understand. And if your joy is dependent upon you understanding every particular thing that God is doing in your life, you are going to be miserable. Now, I know in my life, there have been so many times that I had... No clue what God was doing. I just didn't understand what God was doing in my life. A little over 12 years ago, God brought us back to Enid. We knew very clearly that God had told us to leave a ministry position in San Angelo, Texas and to come back home. Now, God spoke very clearly through his word. He confirmed it to both Kim and I. And so we knew that God said, pick up and go back. But we thought, oh, we'd be here four to six months. And then God would say, all right, here's your next ministry position. Head out. Well, a year went by. And here we were in Enid. And I didn't know why. Why were we here? So God opened a door for us to we started visiting Sojourn. Met John at the BSM. We had lunch for three hours. And we saw these young pastors and this young brand new church plant. We thought, well, we'll just go and we'll just come alongside them and help them. We'll encourage them. We'll just this is a good place. I didn't have a job, I was working, fixing rent houses, doing construction, not doing ministry. And I thought, God, what are you doing, what are you doing, I don't understand, what are you doing? And then God opened a door for some other ministry overseas, but still, I don't really have a job doing ministry. And that went on for years. Until God said, I want you to hear it, sojourn. Now, I didn't understand what God was doing all those years. I couldn't see it. Until later, God revealed other things that we, were, we needed to be here for certain things. Listen, there are going to be times that you are not going to know what God is doing in your life. You just won't understand. You see, His ways are unsearchable, it says. His ways are untraceable. And who of us can really know the mind of the Lord? But I do know this. Real joy happens when you trust God in whatever season you find yourself in. Whether you understand it or not. That's when real joy happens in your life. See, our best praise and our most joy-giving praise is anchored in who God is. It is anchored in who God is. Not necessarily the tokens of love that He gives us. These small tokens of favor that He gives us in our life. But through the dramatic work of salvation in human history. In fact, isn't that what we see happening all through the Old Testament with Israel? All through the Old Testament, we see Israel, that happening God doing that in Israel's life. You see, when Israel would, would go through some dark and troubling time, God would come through to, with them, to them, and He would comfort them by revealing some name that embodied His character. And so, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, God revealed Himself to them as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. The word Jehovah literally means I am. I am. Rapha means healer. And so, God revealed Himself as their healer. I am your healer. And He would heal them of some disease. When Jeremiah was discouraged by Israel's persistent unfaithfulness. He said, how can we survive? We are so sinful. This people is so sinful, God. And God said, Jehovah, I am your righteousness. I'm your righteousness. Then in Ezekiel's day, when the people of Israel felt scared and afraid, of being besieged by all their enemies, God said, to show, Uh, Jehovah Shema, I am the God who is present, ever present with you. And when King David felt confused and felt like all his friends had left him, God revealed himself as Jehovah Ra, I am your shepherd. Then when Abraham was old and childless, without any hope, God would say to him, I am Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Now, how could God be all these things? They didn't understand that. They didn't understand it. In fact, people were still getting sick. People were still dying. People were still in need back then. So it wasn't clear to them how God could be all these things until Jesus showed up. Listen, when Jesus started when Jesus showed up, he started to claim this I am for himself. He said, "I am this." In fact, that's what made all the Jews so mad. Because what God, what Jesus was doing, he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God. And you see, he was fulfilling all those promises. That God had made he was now Jehovah Rapha the God who would heal their disease not just by some miracles no but at the very source for you see at the cross he dealt with our disease he bore our infirmities he carried our sorrows he was wounded for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed Jesus was Jehovah Skitkanu, our God, our righteousness. Because at the cross, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him, we might be the righteousness, that we have the righteousness of God in Him. Through the Holy Spirit, He was Jehovah Shema, the God who tells us that He carries us in the very palms of His hand, and nobody will be able to to snatch us or pluck us out of that hand. Jesus is Jehovah-Ra. He is the good shepherd, the Lord our shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, and he promises never to leave us or forsake us. And finally, Jesus is Jehovah-Rapha, or Jehovah-Jireh our provider. The God who supplies all our needs so that we can say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, if you want to know what God is really like, then look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You know, Listen, guys, I don't understand all that God is doing. I, I just don't understand it. And none of us really do. Paul says God's ways are unsearchable. They are untraceable. We can't know his mind. But I do know this. I know who Jesus is. I know who Jesus is. And it would be good for us to be reminded of what Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29 says. Look at it real quick. Look what he says here. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Listen, the secret things belong to the Lord. But He has revealed things to us as well. And so, there are secret things. There are things that are unsearchable. Unsearchable things about God and His ways that none of us can understand. But the character of God is revealed in Jesus. And that is something that all of us can hold on to. We can hold on to the very character of God. And so let's remember, worship is not about, worship is about who God is. It's not about how we understand all that's going on in our lives. And even if we feel like maybe God is okay with it or maybe he's not okay with us, that's not what worship is about but it is about who He is. We worship because of who He is. And so when, when I can't trace God's hand in what He's doing in my life, I can trust His heart. You can trust His heart. And then one day, we'll be able to say as Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrupable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and to him and through him be all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I can't think of a better way for us to close our time this morning than to worship, than to worship through one of the ways that Jesus gave us to worship Him, and that is through observing the Lord's Supper. This time is a time that we focus and we remember on what, what Jesus did for us at the cross. It is a time to remember what it cost Christ To bring us into his family as his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And it is a time to also worship our God, who through his great love and mercy has brought us into his family through Christ. And so here at Sojourn, we call this time a family meal. It is a family meal. And if you are not part of the family of God here this morning, that you have never accepted Christ you've re- and, and asked Him to enter into your life to receive the things that He did for you, if you have not done that, then we are asking you, instead of taking this meal, I want to ask you just to set, And I want you to think about how your sins have separated you from a holy God. But listen, I want you also to think about the fact that God made a way for you. He made a way for you to enter into His family through what Jesus did at the cross. And if you will just trust Him and believe what He has done for you, and like Romans 10 says, that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God had raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so... I want to just implore you to just do that. Trust Christ. Believe what He has done for you. And God will save you. But let's pray and let's prepare our hearts to take this meal together. Let's pray together.
0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we finish this section of Romans, Lord, it's, it's easy for us to reflect back and wonder at how we can reconcile your sovereignty and election and our responsibility with salvation and how that all works. And Lord, it's easy to get caught up in the arguments and just stay there and wonder who's right and who's wrong and how we can figure all this out and lord i I can't help but think it's our pride that leads us there we would do well father to follow paul's example and allow your spirit to produce in our hearts what it produced in his when he was writing this letter you are worthy to be praised because of these truths and these doctrines that are far above us. Who can know your mind, Lord? Who can understand your ways? Who can understand the depth of your grace, the beauty of your plan, and how you can even incorporate the darkness of sin into it and produce such an amazing result. God, your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. Paul tells us in Corinthians that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I just pray, Father, that this morning we would join in with Paul as we reflect back on all these truths we've heard the very depths of the gospel explained that father, it would ultimately lead us to praise that our hearts would be encouraged, that Lord, our trust in you would be strengthened father, that we would know that even though there are things in this life that we can not understand, even though we can't fully grasp, your sovereignty, why you harden who you harden, and why you show mercy to who you show mercy, Father. We don't know. But just as Jim said, Father, you can be trusted. There's no one else that can be trusted more with these things. You're perfect in all your ways. So, Lord, we just, we praise you this morning for that. We just lift you up because you're worthy, and you alone are worthy, God.